Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them, before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain, in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors of the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Moreover, men are afraid of a high place, and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home, while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken, and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Welcome back. I'm Brian, and this is my Bible study podcast. We're back after a quick one week break, but we're excited to be starting the home stretch of our Worldly Hevel Joy in Christ series through Philippians and Ecclesiastes. If I've mapped things out correctly, then we should only have four episodes left, so this week and next week. Today we're covering the first half of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm not going to lie, this is a pretty confusing passage to just pick up and read through. It's also a passage that has some significant hyperlinks across the Bible. I'll try to point out some of the hyperlinks along the way, as well as maybe dive into a couple of the root words. But mostly I'm just going to try to help us to see the forest from the trees. At the surface, there are two primary areas that this passage hit on, and both have come up before in the book. First, the author, who's referred to as the teacher or the preacher throughout Ecclesiastes, but the author's continuing to unpack the importance of proper perspective and identity. Even when you're young, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, it says. So no matter the stage of your life that you're in, don't assume that you have infinite time left. Don't assume that you can live carefree now, disregarding the Lord until later. It says enjoy the pleasures that come with being young, but find joy and pleasure through an identity that's founded in fearing God. The second key point that we'll touch on sets up where the chapter is going to end next week. If the premise of the entire book is a call for us to seek after God, to fear Him, to find our identity in the Lord, our joy in Jesus, and to pursue an obedience to God's Word, like if that's the premise that's going to get underlined next week, verse 8 provides the context. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's that Hebrew word hevel this vapor or mist that seems attainable but never really satisfies. It's a warning that chasing after the things of this world isn't what we're meant for. We should find pleasure in our blessings. We should find joy in our circumstances. But they should never become what we're about. They should never become our identity because trying to feel fulfilled by the world is just going to leave us disappointed. So I pray that this passage would speak to us that it would spur us to recognize our need for God no matter our stage of life, 
and that it would set us up for a pursuit of God rather than the world. Alrighty, so we'll start with unpacking verse 1, and then the plan will be to discuss some of the hyperlinks that are found in the other verses, as well as how those other verses support Ecclesiastes 12.1. And then we'll close out the episode by tying Ecclesiastes 12.8 to the final passage of the book that we'll study next week. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. So serve God from as early as you can. Like this isn't an accusation against those who don't know God yet, those who come to know God later in life. But it's against those who refuse to submit in obedience to God when they do know him. Like remember, this book was originally written to an Israelite audience. They would have been taught about God from an early age, but they also tended to just go through the motions of religiosity rather than actually having a heart shaped by loving God. When we come to know God, we should be cut to the heart with a reverential fear of God, and we should allow that to overflow into loving obedience of God, and that should then go alongside with our professed faith. It should be inseparable. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is and accomplished what he accomplished, bearing our sins on the cross, then why put off living for Christ? Instead, remember your creator and your savior at every stage of your life and let that shape who you are and what you represent. Don't put off what you're able to do now. Serve God now. Honor God now. Enjoy what you have been blessed with, but don't sit on the gifts that you've been given. John Piper says, don't waste your life. Saying, well, I can do that later. I can do that when I'm older. Like, that's a terrible theology. That's a terrible position for a person of faith. It takes for granted one of the biggest things that God's blessed you with in this life. And that's time. Don't assume that you have time later. Live with a hopeful expectation, but also an urgent desire to glorify God and to serve him now. Like, it's easy for me to say that. But it's impossible for me to live that 100%. I'm just going to admit that. We all struggle to do it. But we should pray for a desire to do that. Sometimes when I'm fighting obedience or I'm fighting against answering a call that I think I'm being pulled toward, I find myself having to pray to God just to change my heart, to transform my desires away from what's in this world and toward God and what he's calling me to. I mean, one of the things that this passage in chapter 11 previously they make clear is that God knows how much time you have and we don't. The other thing that's clear is that even if you're blessed with the longevity in this life that you might want, it doesn't mean that you'll be able to actually do the things that you could have done when you were young. Like, I think that a pretty good example of this is that usually as people get older and have families and homes and careers, they tend to get more risk averse and they tend to become less mobile. By this I mean that it's just usually harder for families to decide to drop everything and answer a call than it is for a young person. Rightly or wrongly, that's just how it tends to be. We talk as a church about finishing the race well, but we also need to start the race well. You can't cross the finish line if you never leave the starter's blocks.
So remembering your creator is the subject of verse 1, and it comes up again throughout the first handful of verses. But it really comes up again in verse 6 with a call to remember him, says the New American Standard Translation. The Hebrew word for remember that we find in verse 1 is zahar, and it carries a deeper meaning than just bringing something to mind. It's more active than that. Remembering in Hebrew involves a response. Verse 6 says, Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. They're all references forward to death. Remember God before it's too late. But if remembering is an action, here in verse 6, it's not just about having God in your mind. It's about living life in a way that reflects God is being remembered at all. The passage is also full of language that hyperlinks to so many other biblical passages. God is our creator. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates man in his own image. Isaiah 45 verse 18 underlines that God is creator. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. And passages like John 1, verses 1 through 3, and Colossians 1, verse 16, make it clear that Jesus is God, and that by him all things are created. Verse 7 also has a lot of contextual references. That the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it, is how the verse goes. So it's about man returning to dust, and the spirit of life being breathed into man by God. And these are phrases that would have been familiar to an Israelite audience. They underline who God is, what God produces, and ultimately what God can take away. God can form man from dust, and man's worldly body will return to dust one day. Genesis 2.7 starts, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Ecclesiastes 3.20 declares that all go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all returned to the dust. Additionally, it's about God breathing life into creation. So Genesis 2-7 then continues, And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In Job 27-3, Job declares that the breath of God is in my nostrils. Then in chapter 33, verse 4, Job's friend Elihu says that the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Ezekiel 37, 5 declares, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. These first seven verses, they offer a lot of language that we could dive into. Each and every one of these seemingly weird phrases can be linked to other Old Testament passages or other biblical symbols. But I don't want us to miss the forest from the trees. This passage is about remembering God across all stages of our lives in a way that transforms how we live. Because of who we recognize God is. William Barrick, who's referencing Swindoll's book Living on the Ragged Edge, says that Swindoll offers three pieces of practical advice in the light of verses 1 through 7. First, I must face the fact that I'm not getting any younger. Second, God has designed me to be empty without him. And third, now is the time to prepare for eternity. So look, remembering God must create action, 
but it also must carry significance. Don't just remember God. Remember who God is. God is our creator, our judge, and the source of our salvation. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. So here the author provides a bookend to the entire book. Chapter 12, verse 8 echoes the words of chapter 1, verse 2, which says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So it's that Hebrew word hevel, and it's the one that gets translated as vanity or meaninglessness or absolute futility, depending on the translation that you use. Over and over again, Ecclesiastes has pointed out the absolute hevel of seeking after fulfillment through worldly things, of trying to find our identity in the things under the sun. So there's a verse in the book of Psalms that I think really helps tie this whole passage together. In Psalm 39 verse 5, King David declares that man's life is hevel, or a mere breath, in the context of God. And that's what a lot of this book is really dove into is that when we chase after the things of this world, try to, trying to live a worldly life, we're, we're just chasing after hevel, things that are going to disappoint. God is sovereign. God has made promises. God will keep promises. God offers more than the hevel of this world, so we should seek him. Thomas Schreiner notes that the years of youth and vigor are to be enjoyed if possible, but that the wise person recognizes that life is short that fearing God is most important. Here the themes of Ecclesiastes, they're nicely tied together. Life is full of vanity and absurdity, and yet one should also find joy in good days when they come. In the midst of a life that exceeds human comprehension, God should be feared and trusted, for ultimately he will reward those who fear and obey him, Schreiner says. So look, The point of Ecclesiastes isn't that we have no hope because life is meaningless. No, that's absolutely not the case. It's that through God we have all hope, even when life under the sun might look futile. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, a life that we could never live, who then bore our sins on the cross and suffered death so that we might be granted a path to forgiveness, a right relationship with God, and then who was resurrected from the dead and offers eternal life to those who believe in him, he will return again. And that promise is reality. That promise is greater than the world. That promise brings hope. And how we achieve that forgiveness and that eternal life is through faith in him. Jesus declares himself in John 16.33 that in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Thanks for listening. All Bible verses are from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright 1995 by the Lachman Foundation. Next episode, we'll be back in the book of Philippians. Until then, though, I love y'all.